0: It's the wonky show. Absolute chaos. Who knows who will be in the government and who will have resigned by the end of this intro, let alone by the time you hear this. But there's other stuff too. The NSS results are out. The Secretary is set to tackle grade inflation. We'll find out how. And there's a new paper out on access to HE. It's all coming
1: up. Exam season, a very important year for examinations, getting back on track after the pandemic. We've got the schools bill and and, and all of the fallout from that. Um, We've got a whole range of DFE things that are moving into delivery. Uh, We've got a bumpy year for HE applications and recruitment.
0: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to refresh the feed on this week's Doom, as usual, three terrific guests... Uh, in London, Alistair Jarvis is Pro Vice Chancellor, Partnerships and Governance at the University of London. Alistair, your highlight of the week, please.
2: Well, it's clearly the the Prime Minister um, resigning. <laughs> about now, as we record, it was what fifteen minutes ago. I
0: don't
2: know, was it? Yeah, I think about fifteen minutes that that he announced he's going to go. I mean, we haven't gone yet, so you know, he, might, he might still try and hang on. But at the moment, I mean, by it the looks time like I've edited this on today. the train tonight, it will be such old news. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in Essex, marie Canning is Chief Exec at the Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week, please.
1: Uh, we have around 16,000 kids graduating um, across this uh, next few weeks at different universities. So, yeah, our graduations of all, all the pupils across the country have been working so hard at the Brilliant Club. It's got to be a highlight, a, a bit of a ray of hope in the political uh, disasters we've been seeing this week. <laughs> and somewhere else in london
0: in another part of the building that i'm in uh, is wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach mark your highlight of the week please
3: oh jim there's so many of the last 24 hours uh but i think i think my favorite has to be this morning apart from obviously uh, alistair's as you mentioned the prime minister resigning michelle donlan um education secretary for the last 24 hours uh resigning about three minutes before boris so she might have had an opportunity to stay as secretary of state for the summer at least until a new leader was elected but she managed to misjudge that by by literally minutes uh and now she's out um right before when she didn't need to be so that was kind of the chef's kiss moment on a crazy 24 hours she might be back by this afternoon, so... She might be back. She might be Prime Minister by this afternoon, at this rate. So. Anyway, let's get to
0: item one, shall we? We start this week with politics. It's been a tumultuous week, as Mark says. Michelle Donald became Secretary of State and then resigned on Thursday morning. And there's been all sorts of
2: other shenanigans, it says here in the script. So, Alistair, what is going on? So, gosh, Jim, um, what a challenge to sum it up. So, it many Cabinet Ministers, Junior Ministers resigning. Majority of Conservative MPs are now publicly stating they lost confidence in the prime minister even people he's appointed to the cabinet in the in the last sort of day or two Nadim Zahawi, michelle donnellan have also lost confidence in him they all want a new party leader which of course means we'll end up with a new pm initially boris johnson refused to resign all holed up in number 10 but reports this morning suggest that he does now plan to resign later today i suppose minds are now turning to what on earth is going to happen next because even though it might be the end of boris johnson's premiership It's the start of another period of of political uncertainty, further political turmoil, of course, policy uncertainty, and we'll probably jump into that in a minute. Um, But next up, we've got a Conservative leadership contest, and I think likely a really big field of candidates. Yes. Now,
0: on that sort of leadership contest thing, Mark, do do we, you know, I mean, presumably on on one level or another, there'll be an opportunity for people to either, um, you know, Uh, jump on the culture wars bus or or alternatively be seen to jump off the culture wars bus but I mean you know will higher education feature will skills and higher education feature in that leadership contest do you think
3: probably not I mean it's not really on the spectrum of you know uh of issues that are the forefront of um conservative party party members minds except i mean except for the cultural issues some you know some stoke it more than others another way of thinking about this is you know who who's who's the who's, who's gonna be the wonky candidate jim you know i think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to decide <laughs> and i suspect there will be as a serious point though a kind of there'll be some more uh on the kind of technocratic managerial uh ends, you know, the the sort that you know, the sort that we like at Wonky, the sort the sort of the sort of serious politician. Um probably in that basket you'll be looking at, you know, the Rishi Sunaks and Jeremy Hunt's of the world. Um and then on the other on the other end, um you'll be looking at the kind of Liz Trusses and uh, and co who will be you know using culture war uh divisive issues to try and stoke up the base which um you know that 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 is a significant uh significant flank of the the you know many of these ministers' strategies at the moment so it could be you know it could it could be a bit it could be a bit unpleasant to watch but it is just a leadership contest and you know there's a lot there'll be a lot of hot air uh but a bit it, it I think, as Alice has said, I think the bigger problem for us is the, you know, the kind of the gridlock that will ensue now. You know, so there aren't any ministers in any departments to speak of. There's going to be a long contest with a large amount of candidates. It's going to drag into the autumn, um, and nothing is going to get out of Whitehall, uh, which means uh, stalemate on a bunch of policy, not least, you know, things like uh, negotiations over the future of Horizon, which was meant to be happening this week until the science minister seemed to throw in the towel at the last minute as well. So, I mean, a bunch of things stacking up in the intray that are going to start to be looking very rotten by the time a new prime minister, whoever that is, uh, takes the reins later, later in the year.
0: Yes. So, so Anne-Marie, you know, is there stuff that we are, you know, waiting for? Is that, you know, is this kind of period of karma some people would say it would be quite nice to not have any higher education policy tumbling out of Whitehall for a few months because the, the kind of general tone and standard of what has been tumbling out has been problematic so is it is it a problem you know is it a problem that you know kind of nothing will happen on on, on HE for a while or, or or should we be worried are there things that kind of matter in the next few months
1: uh, I'm sure there's lots of folks who are, are breathing out now that there's uh, not a sort of reforming, uh, sort of opinionated HE minister. Um- But I come at it from the school side of things. But again,
0: just for caveat purposes, by the time you listen to this podcast, there may well be.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, At this very second, um, I should caveat, um, I I come at it from from the sort of other end of the telescope though, which is in the world of education, we're in exam season, a a very important year for uh, examinations, getting back on track after the pandemic. We've got the schools bill and and, and all of the fallout from that. Um, We've got a whole range of DFE things that are moving into delivery. Uh, We've got a bumpy year for HE applications and recruitment. Uh, And I I do think a a summer of, um, I don't see it as necessarily having a nice rest. I see it as a bit of paralysis. And I do think that's problematic for education in the wake of the pandemic. So um, I I can see why some folks might be relieved, but I I think in the long term, not good uh, for children, young people and and students. Um, I mean, I think the the real thing is what happens next. Uh, I personally don't think it would be Acceptable. Uh, for Boris to stay until autumn. I'm I'm sure folks will decide uh, in the Conservative Party what should happen there. But for me, the conduct over the past 48 hours has been beyond belief. Um, And I really think for the integrity of institutions, we need a caretaker PM. I think Varb's probably the most uh, reasonable candidate in in that field, uh, whilst the leadership election takes place. Uh, And I think we get all the ministers back into their seats, uh, or else we are going to see a degree of chaos that we've not witnessed before in government.
0: Alistair this uh this the, you know the, this these ongoing negotiations over horizon that, that that's all looking bleak isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean it is looking bleak. I mean I suppose we don't know that with a new prime minister could you have someone who comes in finds a way to sort out the the Northern Ireland issue, um, and therefore Horizon Association becomes a possibility again. So I think you know it, the whole change in politics could could see a breakthrough, but the clock's really ticking there. And and you know I, I think most people are now factored in the sort of very high likelihood that we won't be associating to to Horizon or at least not not initially. But yeah, it's um, I mean I, I suppose you know one of my hopes for for this political change is that we could see a, a breakthrough there. But that's but that's going to take a while because we're not going to have a new PM. You know, probably until the autumn. I think, I think, you know, others are right that it's going to be. There's probably going to be ten candidates, and it's going to be a long, drawn-out leadership process. I, I mean, I think it's interesting. You've got, we've got so many other policy issues that are just going to freeze now, and we're going to be waiting. So, um, you know, what's going to happen with the free speech bill? Um, and it's certainly going to be delayed now. Could it even be scrapped? Is it really going to be a priority of a, a new prime minister? Um, got big decisions on minimum entry requirements, student number controls, all those decisions, you know, need a minister to make those decisions, probably need a, a number 10 machine to sort of back it, need a treasury, you know, treasury ministers involved. Comptures. Yeah, right. there's a, there's
3: a machinery government issue where you yeah. need a certain amount of ministers to to turn up to these debates and and speak and 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 move legislation forward. At the moment, where where at the time of recording, you know the government's been essentially emptied out, which means they're not going to be able to to take through any legislation. So I think assuming that they put you know everyone comes back in post and says, all right, Boris is gone, and you know there's a sort of amnesty on all these on all these ministerial jobs, and Michelle Donlon is is you know everyone's allowed to forget her. You know, her uh, 11th hour, uh, abortive treachery. Um, then, you know, one, one would expect things just to kind of grind on, 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 you know, grind on slowly. But I think the wild card here is issue really is what happens to this parliament because, you know, a new Tory leader is as likely to want to go to the country to secure their own mandate. You know, we were heading towards general election cycle anyway. So I think the Tory leadership contest is kind of the start of that process whether it happens um in the spring next year or or the autumn next year or, or afterwards i i do think we're heading towards a general election which means resetting the clock on everything you just mentioned alistair
2: i think I, I completely agree about i think resetting the clock i think a new you know a new prime minister can reset the clock on all of that i mean even with the OFS, you know who, who's giving them a political steer if you haven't got ministers you haven't got a number 10 team um, but but i mean on the general election i think it's it's going to be a it's a big political gamble here isn't it because you've got there's going to be significant pressure to hold a general election. New um, PM might decide that um, they they need a fresh mandate. Um, they you know go to the country, try and get that mandate, get sort of some personal authority. But on the other hand, um, you've got um, you would know, have a new pm with, with, without any reputation without any policy successes um, you know it's hardly a, a clear cut thing that they're going to win a big majority so quite a risk to take a, a general election you'd be a very short lived pm on the other hand you've got the cost of living crisis rising inflation rising prices rising energy costs over the winter you know possibly covid sur- surge again um, you might think actually it's better to go for general election now because things are going to get worse before they get better. If
3: it's yeah. one of those, you know, if one of a technocratic end, if it's Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt, particularly particularly someone who hasn't been a cabinet minister, if it's Jeremy Hunt, who's who's, you know, hasn't been in cabinet now for a while, And can, can say, you know, I haven't been responsible for any of these previous decisions and all the things going on. And, you know, I really do need a new mandate. Whereas Rishi Sunak, it's a bit trickier for him because, you know, he's been Chancellor of the Exchequer and it's, it's just strains credibility to say, you know, this is the, this is the totally fresh start. And they do need a fresh start. I mean, parties start to. To rot in government after a while. I mean, I've, you know, listening to some of the, the Conservative Party commentary, there are, there are actually serious voices in it starting to say things like, well, maybe we should lose a general election and go back to the, go back to opposition and renew. I remember the same thing people were saying when Gordon Brown was, was Prime Minister. People were saying it's time for Labour. You know, Pete, people, Gordon Brown was squatting in
0: number 10. Yeah.
3: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. They were saying, you know, it's time, it's time. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to renew as a party. Everything's getting too ridiculous. Uh, we've run out of ideas, run out of steam. Everyone's, you know, I mean, the Tories have got a particular Sleeves problem that that you know that. You know, they're going to need to do a huge clearing out of their, of, of MPs and, and candidates and really crack down on, um, on who they're getting selected for seats. Um, if they, you know, if they're going to have any, any future, we're not going to kind of continue into these kind of ridiculous, you know, death, sleazy death spirals. And they've been in power a long time now, you know, and as I say, you know, the, the political rot just starts to set in. You know, YouGov has Labour as the largest party as of this week on its, uh, MRP model with a general election held today. That was before Boris, resign so you know it's 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 all it's all, all to play but, for but, but, but Anne-Marie uh, here's a here's a
0: question Anne-Marie right so imagine you find yourself as the sort of higher education minister for the next ext- Stranger or Things, or
3: things like Happens Bar- Baroness Canning
0: uh, no, <laughs> imagine you end up as the HE minister and you're like okay there is going to be a new government and as ever with H E Minister, you often haven't really got any money, but what you have got is the ability to kind of wind people up and ke- get some headlines and issue some guidelines and convene some roundtables. You're not gonna sit there if you're ambitious. That sounds like Henry. Do... That
3: sounds like Henry to me. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sounds... <laughs> you're not gonna sit you're not gonna do nothing for a few months, are you? In fact, potentially you do all sorts of things that will, you know, catch the eye of the Sunday Telegraph and wind people up, aren't you? Isn't that what you well, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, isn't isn't that what isn't that what a Premier Minister you know he's um, going to do in the next four months five months
1: I mean they would be mad to do that right why Why would you do that you've got four month tenure um, I mean you could spend it tootling around annoying everyone but what, what's in it for you as an individual political because well, if you because if you wind up the right people
0: you know if you you know if as a result of winding up the blob in higher education you climb up the con home league table of you know eye-catching yeah. ministers you,
4: you put on you the know, pressure to get a serious
3: appointment yeah.
1: I, I, I'm sorry I'm, I'm too earnest an individual. I'm just sat here (laughs) thinking, right, next year we've got the access and participation plans. This is great to really storm a march on reforming um, around APPs and getting some real movement on some of these issues around equity and education. So, sorry, I'm too dorky. I'm not Machiavellian enough to think that I'd uh, tootle around annoying everyone. But here's a a really
0: good question then as a result, Alistair, which is... You know, the Office for Students has, I don't, look, I, don't, I don't think it's unfair to say, there was clearly a period where you could argue that there was a bit of a disconnect in terms bit be, between OFS and, and, and ministers, and, and that, whatever ice was there, has clearly frozen over the past period, and there's been a lot more synergy between the objectives of OFS and, and ministers. What happens when there aren't really any ministers? <laughs> <laughs> what does OFS do next? Because OFS is about to do a series of moderately controversial things in the sector, right?
2: C- completely. I mean, I, I, I mean we, what we've had for a number of years is a politically directed Regulator. I mean, it's, I've always said it's a, a joke that um, they call themselves an independent regulator because clearly they get very strong political steer. But there's not going to be anyone giving that political steer for for you know a number of a number of months now. So uh, you know, so I, I, I suppose do do they do they fall back on their their sort of current approach and just sort of keep things ticking over for a few months, or do they really push forward with with the, the whole range of changes, you know, things that been out of consultation? I, I mean, I mean, I suppose technically speaking, um things that have already been, they've already been given a political steer on they have the the sort of power to push on with but but some of them are highly political so I, so I think I think I think it's I think I and I I think it's going to be really hard for them to push ahead with any sort of major changes I I mean you know the OFS itself there's, there's a real question I think with uh you know with a general election possible about about, about what a, a new government does with the OFS you know do they do, do they see the sort of direction of regulation for education the same uh, you know, I think that's a big question there. There's a Boris lieutenant in
3: charge. Uh, James Wharton um, is there as chair of RFS. And, you know, I think, you know, would happily let the whole of the rest of the political establishment burn down. And, and I think he'll, you know, I think he'll still be pushing at all the different things that he was instructed to push by his uh, by his political Masters in the, in the, in the current administration. Um, you know, there's a significant wing of the Tory party who really love all that kind of stuff. I, I think he's going to be, I think he'll, I think he'll continue with, you know, pushing his thumb on the, on the lever on all of this stuff until. Until, until told not to, you know, if the new Tory leader comes in that, that looks very differently on this, or, you know, who knows? I mean, the, the, the relationships are so toxic across that party. You know, it could be that the new leaders want, you know, not a James Wharton person. Um, in which case, you know, his days are numbered. But I mean, if I, you know, if I was him, he's been given his mandate. Um, I
2: reckon he'll continue. Um, there's why, why wouldn't you? Well, yeah, yeah of course, he hasn't got a permanent chief executive yet either. So, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to see whether they, they feel they can make that appointment without a, a sort of ministerial sign-off or, or whether whether a sort of interim minister would, would sign that off.
3: Mm. Yes, and I don't know where that, they've got to that process. One assumes that... Uh the, the, it must have been a reasonably advanced already, anyway.
2: So I think sort of um, shortlist, shortlist stage, yeah. And they, and they right, have of course yeah.
0: started recruiting for the director of academic freedom and freedom of speech. So,
2: we, well, there the, the <laughs> isn't yes. one. There isn't one yet, is there? Because the bill hasn't passed. So I think there's no, still but they've at yeah, the process. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Now's a good time, particularly
3: if there's no ministers to to block the appointment. Um, maybe let, let's get a let's get a wonky mole into
2: that into that role. Well, of course they might have no powers because if a bill doesn't go through. Even if you appoint a person, yes. you haven't got any legislative Good point.
3: Actually, one other thing to mention, Jim, is the latest, uh, legislative action on the free speech bill this week, such as it is. Um, uh, it has been significantly, it looks like it's about to be significantly defanged by David Willett's, um, who's removing the, the legal tort, um, from it. So if, 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 that does happen, then the whole thing is just, you know, just, just a bit of a circus, actually. Uh, but we'll obviously be watching that one closely
2: as it, as it continues its passage. Jim, while well, we're still on politics, so for our Scottish listeners, we've got to ask what all this means for Scottish independence as well, because, you know, the SNP pushing for a vote on Scottish independence, could they, could they use, frame a general election as a vote, as a, as a sort of de facto referendum? You know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to add another interesting political twist on, on that debate. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
4: Employment and employability are at the forefront of graduates thinking about their future. Instead of debating whether getting a job should be the sole, the main, or merely a secondary purpose in attending higher education, we should focus more on improving the evidence base on what works to improve that employability. Especially given the current cost of living crisis, with rising inflation eroding the value of graduate salaries, and with questions about the future of work looming more generally, we owe it to young people to ensure our warm words, our positive noises about graduate employment are underpinned by policies and practices that deliver. A report that Tezo has published shows that we're particularly lacking in evidence on what works to address inequalities in the labor market. This means the sector needs to do more to ensure that interventions on employability don't simply address students who are already likely to get a graduate job, but more effectively support those disadvantaged young people who would most benefit from greater earnings and well-being.
0: Now next up this week was NSSmus and things are still looking bleak Anne-Marie.
1: Now, here's the news, the headlines. Uh, Satisfaction has not returned to the pre-pandemic levels. Uh, In fact, we're seeing a a distinct pattern, which is medics and nurses are especially struggling to get the academic support that they need and want. Um, Remember, this is the cohort of students who were recruited uh, before the pandemic um, coming coming to the end of their studies. We are seeing increased disengagement with those 27 uh, statements that students are asked to respond to. Um, And we're seeing an interesting trend, which is, The disagreement is... um Particularly distinct in bigger and more well-known um, institutions. In fact, I really like what Wonky did on the website, where they flipped how the data is usually presented. Uh, often we present uh, levels of agreement, agreement, but they've represented levels of disagreement. I think that's um, is quite telling. Um, so some of the big beasts uh, are seeing much lower levels of satisfaction, and it's particularly in that area of academic support. So if you look at the data visualization, it just drops off a cliff uh, during the pandemic and. and and carries on plummeting um satisfactions uh, sort of you know highest in northern ireland uh, about 76 percent in in england wales has gone up to 77 percent and scotland has dropped to 75.5 so um a few things going on um in terms of the nations um uh, DK's got a, an interesting piece on the website looking looking at why this might be uh, and puts it down to sort of bumpy years of recruitment and and surges in recruitment in recent years. So there we go 2022 in the NSS.
0: Alistair what is this uh, you know what is this telling us what are the messages that you would take from this having kind of
2: looked at the the, the results yesterday i mean I, I think we're still we're still seeing a, a significant sort of covid effect on the on the results i mean with if you remember the these students the they, you know final year undergraduate students they've had um you know a really difficult time, time through covid that you know a completely un, you know unprecedented kind of experience and therefore i think i think we're still seeing some of that in the figures um having said that universities sort of you know really worry about n s s results and, and take action off the back of them so i think we're going to have a lot of universities sitting there. You know, today looking at these survey results and saying, okay, what needs to change to to improve things? And and I think the tricky decision actually is, is how much of this is is um, you know a sort of COVID backlog and sort of uh, you know a, a, a response from students. Understandably, they're saying, you know, we haven't had the experience we wanted during um, during the pandemic, and and we're we're telling the university that in our NSS. Or how much of this is that there are other Problems there that they that they need to resolve, and, and and probably it's a bit of both. Both Gemma, I've thought, um, uh, and, and and you know you you see huge differences as ever, don't you, between different institutions, different courses, different you know um, sections of the of student student bodies. Um, so there's always a lot of sort of nuance. Um, and the other thing to say, of course, is that that probably all, these results won't be a great surprise for a lot of universities because they all do their own surveys as well. And although the NSS I, I see is really important and not least comparatively, um, it's only one of you know one of many ways that students are, that universities are checking student opinions. But I, I think you're going to see some you know some changes to try and address some of the problems. But I think there'll also be a bit of a hope that that's, that some of this might um, pick up when you've got a cohort coming through that haven't been hit so much by a pandemic.
0: Mark, if we look at the big categories here, so student union is still bottom, although it's not top of active disagree there's a there's a there appears to be a problem with the question on student union because it has the biggest neither agree nor disagree score but that's different different story for a different day student voice is still languishing a bit learning community we might expect to be languishing given there's been a pandemic but um the one that i, I guess lots of people will be worried about will be assessment and feedback because assessment and feedback is one of the categories that feeds the TEF. and of course this is a chunk of data that will feed this big TEF exercise that's coming up and so you know some of this data data benchmarks is going to appear in those dashboards that appear in September. So the sector still, you know, having problems on assessment and feedback, you know, the, the, of the kind of purely and strongly academic category still languishing. Um, that's going to be a concern for a lot of providers, right?
3: Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a hardy perennial, this one. And, and it's, it's clearly one of these Issues have got a bit stuck in a lot of places. Um, and you're not, you're just not seeing, not seeing enough movement. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're running university and your assessment feedback scores, you know, are either flat or going down, then you're going to be very concerned for the reasons you just said. That said. There is a question mark, isn't there, about the future of NSS and what happens to this data, um, I guess, sort of slightly exacerbated by the, the current political situation. Uh, I mean, there, there there's kind of one man in Whitehall who um, has taken again <laughs> the NSS. Uh, that is uh, Michelle Donlan's um, special advisor, Ian Mansfield, uh, friend of the show. Um, and he's been campaigning uh, in government to uh, water it down, um, yeah. Well, I mean, specifically, the, not make the response mandatory. Yeah,
0: specifically, he doesn't like the word satisfaction, which of course led to the preposterous chaos of the proposed draft question on student unions being to what extent do you agree with the following <laughs> I, I am content with my student mm. union where contentment is a is a replacement for satisfaction that presumably yeah. they were hoping they could slip past the minister
3: but um, this is a this is a, a, in a funny kind of way what happens to the big politics actually is going to impact on NSS really because it comes down to whether or not the new education secretary keeps Ian in post <laughs> because no one else in Whitehall cares about NSS apart from me. and, and uh, actually when you were a special advisor at DFE you can you can do quite a lot to it so um yeah there's some, some question marks about um what what how that data is going to uh be used in the future that said um you know i think any university would uh would be wise to uh assume it's going to continue continue in this way um and use it to make meaningful change and uh, yeah assessment of feedback i don't know jim we've been talking about this for i mean since i was a sab i mean you know, we talk about this for 15 years at least. I mean, um, I don't know. And so we need some new ideas, new thinking.
0: Uh, and marie on this question on learning community, because I mean, we've done research before that suggests that you can kind of triangulate quite closely learning community with mental health and with outcomes and belonging and all that sort of stuff. I, I guess... You know, we might have expected learning community to be down at 67% in 2021. It will be a disappointment, won't it, that the year the sector reopened its campuses, that's only gone back up by one percentage point. That will be a disappointment for lots of people.
1: It's disappointing, but it, it's certainly no surprise. Um, I think this sort of crisis, in student belonging, and and actually, not to be too existential, but belonging in society at large has been brewing for many, many years. Um, so it's always been there, and, and I think it will persist, regardless of the p- pandemic. Um, that, that is one of the particularly low areas on the NSS and has been for a few years, but also feedback, course organisation. Um, so So I think, you know, the roadmap's really clear for institutions. If you care about your students, you're going to be zooming in on these things, getting your action plans together, but specifically doing it discipline by discipline, course by course and paying attention to subgroup analysis, because there are some students who are much more badly affected by feeling like a fish out of water in institutions than others. That said, I remember from my time at King's when we asked students about their sense of belonging no one felt like they belonged. The really wealthy students didn't feel like they belonged. You know, the the students whose mums and dads and grandmas and granddads have been to university, they didn't have particularly high levels of of sort of attachment and belonging to their institutions. And then it just um, became lower and lower at the sort of more non-traditional, I'm doing air quotes on that, um, your your profile was. So it it really is about understanding, you know, where students are coming from, where they're going uh, and how you can respond to that as, as a university, as a provider. I also think there's probably a bit of a regional flavour to these NSS results. And, um, you know, different institutions in different parts of the country have been affected differently um, by COVID lockdowns and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a really interesting um, sort of proposition to universities. But, you know, I'd be steadying the boat and cracking on with getting on with the, the things we know have been affecting students for years upon years.
0: Okay. Now, this week, Universities UK and Guild HE have committed their members to reversing pandemic grade inflation. What is going on here, Mark?
3: Yeah, that's right, Jim. Um, so, yes, the sector is, uh, wanting to turn the clock back on, um, to, uh, grade inflation to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and has announced that it is going to be doing that, um, over the next, uh, over the next year, I think. Um, so, regular listeners will remember the um, uh, moral panic about uh, great inflation that has has been taking place ever since uh, the pandemic started and obviously everything got quite jumbled up in terms of A-levels and uh, degrees are awarded and, um, uh, uh, it's kind of long story short. Uh, the, uh, the proportion of good degrees, uh, first and two, one, um, crept up quite a lot, um, sparking a moral panic from ministers, uh, RFS, uh, sections of the media. Um, so the sector is looking to go back to its previous levels. Um, I, I don't know how that's going to happen, t- uh, to be honest. Uh, it seems like quite a big task. Um, I don't know how uh, many of the issues are going to be tackled, um, um, not least the fairness for the, the students over the last two years. Um, and uh, I'm not convinced that the the moral panic about uh, grade inflation is, is merited. So um, I understand the kind of political pressure to do this. Uh, but uh, again, back to this Whitehall question. Um, if there are no ministers, uh, the lights are not all on. Uh, does it really matter? Can we let this one slide and do what's right for Uh, this year's cohort and future cohorts uh, regardless of the pressure so um, that's what's happening Um, as yeah more of a comment than a question i have views as you can tell Uh, but i'm keen to hear from the others Uh, alistair here's here's my puzzle right so if you you know if you're looking at your
0: uh, numbers and you can see that you are gliding if you're not careful towards your current second year undergraduates Gliding dangerously towards post-pandemic levels of grade inflation, rather than pre-pandemic levels of grade inflation. What do you do in the next twelve months to get, get to move back? What do you actually, you know, what are the practical steps that a university takes to get back to pre-pandemic levels of of, of kind of first and see ones?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think as as you're, you're suggesting, it's it's not easy, and it and it usually can't be done very quickly. I, I, remember, I remember having lots of conversations with, with ministers and advisors and civil servants and others about great inflation. And I, I think, as uh, as you said, it's, it's an issue that seems to get quite a lot of political cut through. The media are interested as well. I mean, it's, it's not unheard of to have front page stories that mention Mentioned grade inflation, um, and, so, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not surprised the pressure's back on, on it, and I'm not surprised the sectors trying trying to sort of say we're going to take action because I think that the pressure is, you know, continues to be there. In terms of what you actually do. Um, you can't you can't change it overnight it takes time and in fact, um, there was a load of interventions that were put in place probably four or five years ago now, which you were seeing before the pandemic just starting to have an effect, a, 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 an impact you're just starting to see great inflation sort of um, uh, dropping a bit or sort of at least levering off and then of course, the pandemic uh, happened um, quite rightly I think um, universities um, you know get, gave students um, you know, some benefit of the doubt through 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 COVID, as they certainly should do. Um, so, so no, I don't think you can do. I don't. I don't think it's easy to do mid mid course. I mean, there are things you can do with with how you do your degree algorithms, what you do about sort of you know people on the kind of border between um, one grade or or another. Um, so there are there are things you can do, but but most things don't happen quickly, um, and it would be pretty unfair to sort of um, you know take someone mid degree and then suddenly tell them, well, actually, you're you know, mark them in a different way. Um, so, 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 ju- ju- just as we were starting to see a, an impact, probably about three years after some interventions, um, I think we're going to. It's going to take time to get it back down. And I think in most areas, you're not going to see dramatic shifts. I mean, the other thing you can do is you can look at outliers because you know y- you might have the odd course or indeed the odd university where it's a complete outlier, and then you could go in and maybe make some more significant changes. But, but, but generally speaking, these things are are slow and take take time. Um,
0: yeah, and and look, Anne Marie, this is this this is this really is a, a proper puzzle, isn't it? Because you know, changing the degree algorithm halfway through someone's degree doesn't feel especially fair, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, marking more harshly that when we do criterion referencing, that probably doesn't feel very fair. Either, and you know, some of the stuff that we put in place during the pandemic, you know, which it essentially was to deal with the fact that people felt isolated or their mental health was affected, and so on. We I mean, not five minutes ago we we're having a conversation about the idea that that's still an issue. So, you know, this idea that we can go back to pre-pandemic in a year for those second years—it's fantasy land, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, a year is is way too quickly. And and actually, if you look at what's going on with uh, you know GCSE A level qualifications, we're seeing a sort of of smoothing um, over a number of years um, back to pre-pandemic sort of distribution of, of grades. So a year is really, really quite harsh, uh, and I think if I was a student in the in the assessment year, that's being discussed, you know, I would be pretty animated about that, fairly angry, and I think institutions could be open to vast numbers of appeals. So um, I think you know, Alistair's right to highlight the the time horizon. I think it's a sort of four year project at the very least. Um, I guess the other thing that also is sort of in, in my radar is is how this interacts with awarding gaps. Um, I can remember. A really, <laughs> a really unbelievable moment a few years ago talking about awarding gaps and and those awarding gaps that emerge regardless of controlling for um, uh, grades upon entry uh, and, and and quite a senior. Uh, member of um, sort of the higher education establishment saying, well, we can't just give out more first. Um, so for me, that that distribution and, and how we monitor what's happening for um, subgroups uh, within the student population is just as much a part of this agenda as the broader um, grade distribution um, in in cohorts.
0: But Mark, I mean, you know, in many ways, the point Anne-Marie raises is, 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 is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Because if we, you know, if you look at the university expansion um, debate and and the and the and the you know cr- kind of read across from that we, we we surely are only a few weeks away from someone senior in the sector pointing out to the press that in order to get back to last year 's or the year befores or the year before that 's um, grade distribution plus hitting OFS APP targets means that, for example, white students are going to have to put up with getting less firsts. And, and you know, I mean, you know, that is just the reality if you want to kind of hit both those targets. But that wouldn't be a very, you know, that wouldn't be a well-received message in part of the press, parts of the press, would it?
3: Yeah well I, I this is also why I suspect it kind of won't happen because um it's 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 basically too difficult you know the pandemic has changed everything has changed everything forever in so many ways and um this raises you know numerous problems for universities to to try and achieve and they're going to you know trying to make that kind of trade off in public this that's it's just exactly that sort of calculation that um is going to be absolutely piled upon like we saw when um you know the the mechanisms for announcing a levels were 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 put out uh back in in twenty twenty and when the pandemic was um really raging um that's exactly the sort of thing that um students and their parents and uh the press are going to be um all over so it's a it's a it's a kind of it's it's not a great it's a it's an invidious position for a university leader because you're kind of damned if you, you're damned if you don't um but uh ultimately i think you've got to look forward and you've got to look at this year's cohort and and the future cohorts and and what's what's fair for them um and you know i think i think when people's sense of kind of natural justice is offended you're going to get yourself into all sorts of knots um and it's that sort of issue it's that sort of feeling that leads to that kind of crossover um that kind of crossover media event which would only pile the pressure on further so I, I think everyone's got to everyone's got to look forward. It's, 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 it's my view, I'd, I'd, and I'd be surprised if this has any meaningful effect, given how difficult it is, given how long it will take. Um, uh, but we'll see, and we'll see. You know, the, a change in government might mean um, you know less less heat on this question, but who knows?
0: Alistair, how long has the UK degree classification system? going to last for now i mean it, its demise has been its demise has been predicted too early several times but surely
2: surely the writing is on the wall um <laughs> I, mean, I i i think there's a i think there's a case for running two degree gas systems in parallel actually because i th- i i think um you know i think there's been a lot a lot of talk about move to gpa of course there's been some some attempts over the years it's never quite got there i think people broadly speaking um still kind of understand the the first two ones kind of system um but it does now seem increasingly sort of outdated so i do i do wonder about whether whether we're going to see you know at some stage a move to to using sort of both alongside which which might then herald a long-term move to sort of gpa but as you said it's come it's this is kind of an old chestnut that's come around again and again and again hasn't it and um, it's also, ultimately I mean, it, they it, haven't sort of bitten the bullet you might have a view it. on this Alistair. how does it interact with the lifelong
0: uh loan entitlement if you go and do a module somewhere do you get a first in the module i mean how does that work <laughs> I have well that, this, yeah, we need I mean, to mean think about this don't
2: we absolutely i mean i mean fr- frankly how does how does um, an awful lot of policy and, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, and regulation yeah. linking with lifelong loan entitlement. I mean, the pro- one of the big problems, right, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the, the concept of lifelong loan entitlement. The problem is it's never really got beyond the concept, has it? It's still, you know, it's still a, a concept that there isn't, there isn't um, we, we don't know the, the size of the funding envelope. We don't know what courses are eligible, what students are eligible, how are you going to potentially, how the sort of modulization works with regulation. Indeed, some of the regulation seems to be pushing you away from it. I mean, you look at the outcome measures, for example, you know, how do they relate to a modular, a modular provision? Well, so yeah, I, I I think It sounds like stuff
0: that uh, an interim minister that's only there for five minutes can, can solve, in the next few months. So let's not worry about that. Now, finally this week, HEPI has published a report on access to HE for Gypsy, Roma and traveller communities. Anne-Marie, um, um, what did we learn? Interesting report.
1: Yeah, so a uh, new report by HEPI uh, published today um, looking at higher education access for, for Gypsy, Roma and traveller communities. Um, and it's it's fairly depressing. Um, we see that the statistics for HE access have, have remained static since 2009 to ten. Uh, that means in the gypsy and roma communities we see just 6.3% of of young people from those communities head into he and actually for travellers of hi- irish heritage it's dropped to 3.8%. So very slim numbers. Um just to translate that into into real numbers that means across the he sector in the uk we've only got 660 um uh, gypsy Roma and Traveller uh, community heri- heritage students at our institutions, and um, that means there's around seven at each university. But actually, it, it's, it's a little bit more um, sort of distributed than that. In that, there's only 30 at the Russell Group in total. Um, so this is, uh, you know, a, a really important report. It asks for a few things: uh, clearer data definitions, particularly around how um, show women and show men um, can uh, report themselves. Uh, within sort of um, drop down uh, data ethnicity data categories Um, a call for these groups to be included in anti-racism training uh, and also amendments to the curriculum to include um, gypsy roma and uh, traveler uh, academics writers thinkers Um, but i guess this is um, it, it really is quite depressing i remember in 2017 when i was at king's we were we were um, publishing a report on this showing that these students were 10 times less likely to enter HE. And if it was stark, then it's even uh, starker now. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really depressing moment thinking about access to HE for these groups.
0: Alistair, I mean, it, you know, I mean, in, in many ways, one of the things that I think is interesting about the report is it's not dissimilar to lots of other reports on particular groups of students and, and the barriers faced and the sorts of things that might make a difference but but I you know I'm not saying that the report isn't important and there aren't really important lessons but I do look at some of these reports and think there's a hell of a lot of individual student groups with individual sets of recommendations and if you're I don't know if you're a head of department somewhere and you're you know thinking about your admissions practice or whatever that might be you end up with so many of these kind of different reports and different groups of students to worry about that it can become overwhelming don't you
2: yeah I, I think i mean I, i'm pleased to see the report because i think it shines a light on a, an area which is important and where there's a real problem and i i hope by reports like this pe- people do look at interventions they can make to try and try and sort of shift the dial in a in a more positive direction but, but you're absolutely right that there are so many reports about different sort of access related um challenges and issues and um i i, I mean i Uh, and i think this is something that um you perhaps you're sort of pointing towards but i think you need to have it as part of an integrated approach it it, it probably isn't feasible that that for every sort of single area you have a completely sort of separate plan of action because frankly it just won't happen so i think i think you know within your your overall approach you need to to see you know how can you improve access for for a range of different underrepresented groups and uh, and this this is one of those groups that um you know clearly you need to think about as as part of that but but you're right you can't have you know you you probably can't have 20 or 30 different action plans for different underrepresented groups you probably have to have an overall plan that 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 tries to make a number of interventions that help um and and of course you know the other thing we see we see this is it goes all the way right down the to lower levels of the education system as well um where action is probably needed to be taken and, and, and Mark, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, to some
0: extent, access and participation, particularly in England over the past few years, has become very data-driven, data-obsessed almost. But on the sorts of numbers that we're talking about here, even if people made a big difference, some of the big differences that people could make wouldn't be statistically significant enough to hit an OFS dashboard.
3: That's right, but uh, that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't try. I mean, there's, there's some interesting recommendations in the report as well. Um, you know, for example, including including these communities in access and participation plans. Um, that might help with the kind of integrated approach that Alice is talking about. How well universities can move the dial here, though, remains to be seen as ever with access issues. The question comes down to, you know, what is the responsibility of universities and, you know, what is, you know, to, to solve society's ills and, and what is on other parts of the system. That said... Um these communities are so marginalized and so invisible um, to the point where i don 't remember the last time we've talked about this at all in the context of higher education when we talk a lot about other access issues for other groups you know pretty much on a weekly basis so given given just the the sheer shocking extent of that marginalization, that should lead universities to think, well you know something you know, something really has to be done. And we do have some responsibility here to, to help, uh, help move things forward. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper
0: into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything going on in ukhe do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to alistair and marie mark and everyone at team wonky that helps make the show happen and until next week stay wonky